Hi, everybody. This is Leonard DiLorenzo, host of Church Life Today. Before we get to today's episode, just a quick word from me to you. We just passed our second anniversary of this show, and I wanted to say thanks. Thanks for listening, and thanks for all the great feedback you've sent our way in the past two years. If you like what you hear in our conversations with pastoral leaders and scholars, please pass our episodes along to others. Everything's available online at RedeemerRadio.com slash churchlife or on SoundCloud at Church Life Today. And if you live in an area where your local Catholic radio station does not carry our show, call your station, send them an email, ask them to take us on. Now let's get to today's show. This Church Life Today podcast is a production of Redeemer Radio and the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame and is brought to you in part by Notre Dame FCU and our listeners. What does it mean to kneel? For Catholics who are a liturgical people used to kneeling, we have a sense for that. My guest today is himself Catholic. He is himself steeped in the liturgy. And yet what he thought he knew about kneeling changed when George Floyd was killed on May 25th, 2020. This is Leonard DiLorenzo on Church Life Today. My guest is Eric Stiles, one of my colleagues here at the University of Notre Dame, where he serves as rector of Carroll Hall. He is also associate artistic director of Afro House, a music-driven performance art company. I've asked him to join me today to talk about his article, which appeared in our Church Life Journal under the title, Black Bodies, Kneeling, and the Liturgy. We'll also talk about the neglected testimonies of African Americans and systemic racism in relation to the call to solidarity and the Catholic Church. Eric Stiles, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Eric, I want to start with an article you published actually back in 2017, which was in our Church Life Journal. It, it had the title, Black Bodies, Kneeling, and the Liturgy. Now, the, the pertinent cultural event at that time was the NFL player Colin Kaepernick, who has remained in the news, who at that point was refraining from standing during the national anthem, as many will recall. He first sat and then he adjusted his practice, so he knelt during the national anthem. His actions, I think it's pretty fair to say, were lambasted quite broadly because they were seen by some as not only disrespectful towards the flag, but also dismissive of the sacrifices that especially military members had made for the United States. So this is where I want to go. You draw attention in your article, which picks up on that, to another kind of sacrifice embedded within American culture over time, which has something very much to do, I think, with what Kaepernick himself was drawing attention to. And that is the sacrifice of black bodies. I know that's a big way to start, but I was wondering, can you tell us a bit about that? Help to unpack that for us. Think about it. You had me reread the article. It's a few years <laughs> old. So most of the things that I, I know is more the mistakes. Uh, but um, I tried to tap into a theory of an academic by the name of Rene Girard. And he has a, an interesting theory about the origins of human culture he is rooted in a complex set of ideas about desire is in fact mimetic or it is uh, learned and we we mime it we repeat the the desires of others and we get caught in a triangular system that leads to violence and that violence um, threatens human culture threatens society and needs a way out or needs a, a, a way in which to be exercised and so therefore human cultures find scapegoats to take on that violence. And Girard 
believe that cycle was embedded in every human culture and was quite real, even if it had been over time veiled with myth and folklore and religion. And this basic theory has become pretty popular among some scholars. And I found it an interesting way to think about how the bodies of Black women and men are kind of sites for an imagination that writes them problematic, writes them violent, writes them subhuman in a very you know, basic way. And so we, there, and therefore, one would say as a way, in, you know, in a very concrete way of justifying slavery. Yeah, but but uh, those ideas and those feelings that are embedded in the culture are still with us. And we find that it's just simply, in many ways, easier to dispose of and harm and act violence upon black bodies. So we're living this at a moment right now, altogether, where you know, in the last maybe 10 years or so, that because of the ubiquitous nature of cameras, people are witnessing this, you know, and witnessing it in very visceral ways. Something that, quite frankly, is not new to African-American daily life. Uh, and so, yeah, that, that's, that's what I would say. I, I'd say that, and yeah, I'll leave it at that for now. You know? Yeah. So, I mean, I don't want to stay on Con Kaepernick the whole time, but since this was brought up in the article and he had a very public sort of protest as a very public figure as an NFL starting NFL quarterback who was repeatedly seen not standing for the national anthem and kneeling. He's drawing attention several years ago to what you're talking about here, the, the black body as a site for the imagination of violence, right? To, and picking up on Gerard's theory of mimetic desire. But you, there's a really interesting observation, a sort of a really interesting observation you've made, which is that it's the ubiquitous nature of the camera that has actually, in some ways, made this even more visible. But it's yeah. not something new, right? right? Right. So, how do you think about this, or what do you what do you feel about this in terms of now a greater consciousness because these things have been seen on camera? There's there's video evidence. Does this bring some relief that it, that now this violence is visible? Is there further frustration that it took like actual video evidence to hear what especially black people have been saying for not just decades, but for now a couple centuries? Yeah, I mean, sure, both, right? I mean, right. both relief that we can now um, be faced with this problem and be quite frankly forced to deal with it. But also, I would say that you know, yes, frustrated that it took this long. Right. Uh, and that, you know, the, the and this is, the, this is a part of the larger issue, right? That the testimony of black people about this problem was disbelieved, so often disbelieved. There were always excuses about what might have been going on when any number of black men or women, but particularly with men, were pulled over by the police at any given time. I, I've experienced it not so much with my, in my own person, but, but as, a, as a child, as a young teenager in the backseat of my parents' car, watching my father stopped for, for no good reason. And the, the humiliation that went along with that. You know, he had a very nice car. Uh, we were taking a, long, a nice long ride in, in the air-conditioned car, and, and we got stopped for no good reason. And, and to observe my father's response and my mother's panic in those moments, you know, it, it is an indication you know, of what we're talking about here. Or, for the example, one of our deans, who happens to be a black man at the University of Notre Dame here, tells, has been telling his own story of, of, of 
observing and watching his own father being beaten uh, by three young white men for absolutely no reason in front of his children. And so they, these are the, the memories, and uh, this is the, the narrative about what it means to be black in America. This is certainly part of it. It's obviously not all of it. This is why young black men and women get to talk as, they, as black people talk um, when they're growing up. And so Colin Kaepernick's choice to kneel was an attempt on his part to seemingly to bring, to bring light to what he believed was a deep injustice. And he apparently decided to use the platform that he had. And it was a protest. I mean, you know, let's not pretend like that's not what it was. It was, right. an act, it was a demonstration, yeah. an act of protest on a major scale, a major stage, but a simple act that garnered for him great anger and, you know, basically helped lose his job. And so uh, he paid a, a, a steep price, you know, and as you, you talked a little earlier, you talked about it, the possibility that this could be seen as prophetic, not prophetic simply just because he was perhaps predicting the future, mm-hmm. but because he was speaking to a situation that other people really just didn't want to hear and he paid the price for it. You know, he was a kind of voice crying out in the desert. And some people, you know, obviously came to his side and joined him, but they also uh, may have paid the price uh, for their transgressions. Yeah. You know, yeah. He was canceled in some way. You know, he's canceled. Sure. Yeah. As a, as a guy with the talent to play in the NFL, he no longer was employed as an NFL cornerback and was in many ways shunned from the public eye from those who didn't want him to be there, though he, of course, kept popping up because others would broadcast what he was saying. Yeah, yeah, and and he became a symbol of a a major concern, right? And has had to, you know, in a sense, probably eke out a career in that because Mm -hmm. he wasn't going to be able to go back uh, to the NFL. So let's... This is Leonard DiLorenzo. You're listening to Church Life Today and Redeemer Radio. I'm talking with Eric Stiles, rector of Carroll Hall at the University of Notre Dame, also associate artistic director of Afro House, a music-driven performance art company, and author, among other publications, of Black Bodies, Kneeling, and the Liturgy that appeared in our own Church Life journal. Eric, let me... Let me just touch on something else in, in your article again. Uh, there are other articles you've written for us in Church Life, and I know you've published elsewhere, that are well worth reading. But I want to I take up this article a little bit further, specifically because it has to do with liturgical themes, it has to do with desire, and certainly it has to do with black bodies and kneeling. So black bodies and kneeling have taken on yet another meaning in recent weeks mm-hmm. when George Floyd, a black man, was not the one kneeling, but he was knelt on by a white police officer in Minneapolis. And as we know, this led to Mr. Floyd's death. So I want to ask you to reflect for a moment on that action, him being knelt on, not as the one kneeling, in light of something you wrote in your article. So I want to kind of bring your line up again and think about it in this context, or ask you to think about it in this context. Here's your line. You wrote, because you're writing about Colin Kaepernick at that point, who's kneeling during the national anthem. You write, kneeling, whether this is fully intended or not, always exposes the kneeler and the viewer to something reverent, significant, and sacred. It is always an act of humility. So again, this scene of George Floyd being knelt on, I want to ask you just think about this line, if there's a way to think about this line and what you were thinking about there in terms of this horrific scene. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, part of the context of, of that line was, you know, recounting the story of how Kaepernick even came to kneel, right? That he actually entered into a conversation with a, a white, I think, retired military serviceman who struggled with his sitting, and they and it was the it was the military it was the uh, soldier who suggested that he kneel. Uh, that that was a, a better op, a better way in which to both draw attention to the issue while simultaneously enacting some reverent act. Mm-hmm. And so, and and so this is what I, I was was asking. You know, our, 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 the audience of church life journalists, primarily Catholic, or largely Catholic, and Catholics are very familiar with kneeling. Uh, we do we kneel all the time, often uh, in the liturgy, and and very familiar with the idea that what we do with our bodies can dispose us to an interior disposition that can communicate to us and to others reverence in this case. You know, we kneel, we stand, we, we, we use the Oran's position where our arms, our hands are outstretched. You know, we, we use the body in these kinds of ways to help to form our imagination about who we are and who God is. And so, you know, I, I offered that, Kneeling is always an act of humility. And I, I remember after this all happened, you know, I, I'll confess that I have not watched the whole video. I just, I, I, I'd have no purpose yeah. watching the whole video. I've only watched, you know, seen just snippets of it. But I reposted my own article recently saying, I used to think, I assumed that all kneeling was reverent. And yet here I am, or yet perhaps I was wrong. Hmm. You know? And so we can still think about that question uh, because, you know, the kneeling on the neck that surely took the life of this man. I mean, there's just, there's no question in my mind and in the mind of most of us who are sane human beings right. that this man's life was snuffed out because of, he was being kneel, his neck was being knelt on for eight and a half minutes, not just a moment, but eight and a half minutes, even while he's, while he's begging for breath. While he's begging for breath and even, even the last two and a half minutes, he had stopped breathing. Right. Right. And yet the man would not uh, relent and those around continued to watch. This act, in many ways, the act is not only sacrilegious, right? The act points to what is a distorted use of, of that which is, I guess, in other words, would be, would be an act of reverence, you know? And so it's interesting to see now political officials, uh, mm-hmm. uh, people on the street, kneeling together, enacting this ritual as a way of honoring George Floyd's memory, and of course, honoring the memories of other uh, black women and men who have been cut short, cut, not only cut short, but cut short through the use of either legitimate government power or pseudo government power. And I mean, when I say pseudo, I mean the vigilantes who, who attacked uh, Ahmaud Arbery on right. the street. Right, right. Who who claim to be engaging in a citizen's arrest uh, on behalf of the of the neighborhood? So you know, it, it, it is it's tragic comedy that what we would normally imagine as kneeling would in fact be used. Excuse me, what we normally would imagine as reverence uh, would be in fact used to snuff out the life of a of another human being. Hmm. You know, I I want to go back. I think this is on a similar point to what you were saying earlier about testimony. So I was asking you about the now ubiquitous nature of cameras 
prior to this, the testimony of black people was disbelieved. It wasn't credible enough on its own, right? Like in some ways, the camera, it seems has made it, made what was not credible, credible or visible or audible. And I'm thinking about, Eric, what you were just speaking about in terms of George Floyd. And I'm thinking that if not for the video, we would not have heard George Floyd's testimony, his begging for breath. We would not have seen his suffering or maybe people like me, white, especially white Americans, would not have believed in this or would have not have been moved by it. So I'm kind of stuck on this issue here of, of testimony and the, and the willingness of those who, who don't bear that pain directly or who aren't under th- threat directly believing, imagining with those who are. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I, yes. I mean, the other people, the other black people who were in close proximity to what was happening, it was happening in the middle of the day, right. in the street, would have been witness, with phones or not, to what, just, what had just happened. And so therefore, uh, as always, they, you know, they would have passed on the story and given their children the talk about being weary, at the very least, of police. And um, yeah, yeah, I think, why is the testimony so important? It, certainly it is, but without, the, without this camera evidence, there's just, there's just so much at stake for members of our society to allow things to be the way that they are, to allow them not to change, to perpetuate systematic racism, which is what we're talking about. Yeah. Uh, a system where a police officer I mean, and, and, and please understand, you know, I, I'm going to you know, say what many folks who have this conversation, I don't believe that all police officers are evil or, or bad. I think I'm sure that most police officers into, into that profession because they want to do great good. Mm-hmm. But just like, just like uh, the Catholic, we have in, we, those of us in ministry have become all the more aware of the shadow, right, in ministry, meaning that all of our motives are not pure. And everybody's motives are not pure. And quite frankly, even those of us who, who are trying to do good, our motives are not pure. We are complicated. That the will to power and the will to lord over others and enact that primal urge to violence and destruction is in us. And no one believes that Black folks, when they say we are under siege or we are at threat, our lives are threatened, then the violence will simply continue. And quite frankly, white Americans benefit from not looking, from not listening. That to accept anything else is to admit that we are not quite the, the people that we say that we are. Hmm. And that's deeply uncomfortable. And what you know, Father Massinger, we talked about that, right? right? You know, says again and again is that if you're unwilling to be uncomfortable, then we're not going to move forward. And I say to my students, without, there is no growth without discomfort. There's a myth. <laughs> There's a myth that would be disturbed, that we like. That's, that's, that's right. That some people really right. like. And yes. that would be, we don't even recognize it's a myth. Right. And, 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 and you're using the word myth in this context. is Clearly, we're talking about a, a negative myth, right? I mean, right, right. Right. We, you know, our myths are multivalent. You know, we are the land of the free. That's a myth. Right, <laughs> you know, and, you know and, and there may be some good things about calling ourselves the land of the free, but we also know that that's, in, a, in, a, in other words, that's the story that we tell ourselves about ourselves. That's mm-hmm. when, I, when I say myth, I'm not making a value judgment, 
Right. Yes. You know, it's the story, the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves to make ourselves something, right? How do Americans become American? Well, we, we tell the story of America, right? For example, every time we gather for these big games and for, you know, we tell the story of America. We stand, uh, we place our hands on our hearts and we listen to the, we listen or sing the national anthem. You know, we actually don't sing the national anthem very much these days, but I, when I was growing up, we sang the Pledge of Allegiance, we said the Pledge of Allegiance, right? right. School. I mean, this is forming our consciousness about who we are. And, you know, this, these stories that are being told about black bodies disrupt that story. Hmm. They disrupt the narrative. And, you know, there's a lot at stake. There's a lot at stake. This is Leonard DiLorenzo. You're listening to Church Life Today on Redeemer Radio. I'm talking with Eric Stiles, Rector of Carroll Hall at the University of Notre Dame, Associate Artistic Director of Afro House, a music-driven performance art company, and author, among other publications, of one of his articles we're talking about today, Black Bodies, Kneeling, and the Liturgy that Appeared in Our Own Church Life Journal. Myth, as you so eloquently defined it, very succinctly there, as the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves. This makes me think of us, you're Catholic, I'm Catholic, about us as Catholics. Most of our listeners here are Catholics. The story that is at the foundation, the root of the identity, the character of a Catholic, is not a story that we tell ourselves about ourselves, but it's a story that we receive. It's a story of someone else that we then take on, right? Mm -hmm. I don't want to go, you know, too far into that, but I just want to ask most basically, like, where is the Catholic Church on, well, this is a big question, on systemic racism in America, right? Like the disturbing of this narrative. It seems like we not only should, but we're duty bound to listen to and be moved by the cries of suffering, by the testimonies that are unheeded. So where has the Catholic Church in America been? Where should it be? Yeah, the Catholic Church in general, I would say, and certainly the Catholic Church in America has all the intellectual resources to, to, to think deeply, to work well around this problem, and yet its response has been at best lukewarm. That's the word that's been percolating in my mind. Uh, lukewarm, tepid at best. Mm-hmm. And tepid because, you know, I think that people just don't want to disturb the status quo. And, and so the, the church, I mean, here's the other part, right? The church's history around racism is really challenging. When the Vatican, years and years ago, in a sense, made a decision to kind of try to get, our, get us out of the business of slavery, right? And, and, and move us out of direct complicity with slavery, American bishops and American Catholics in general, you know, they, they resisted. You know, on a, on a fundamental level, they resisted. They looked for ways in which they look for ways in which to get around what the Pope was saying at the time. I can't quote the Institute Report right now, but the books are out there so we can all find it. You know, uh, and so, you know, there was too much profit and too much invested in a way of life. And on some level, I think Catholics who also suffered persecution and, and uh, distrust in the United States were very invested in Catholics, meaning white, in this case, white Catholics, or, or at least Western European, European Catholics. We're very invested in becoming American hmm. right? and avoiding, and it's the interesting thing about it, right? To be American in this case is, is to become over time white 
And part of what it means to be white is to not be black. I mean, that's just, you know, you may have heard of the one drop rule. One drop of black blood would have made you black, right? And so we've got at the very heart of the Catholic Church, the Healy family, uh, including one, a Jesuit who was the president of Georgetown and yet strongly believed that his mother was biracial and had been a slave. We know she'd been a slave. She's biracial. She'd been a slave. And so by American standards, she was black. Uh, but that, that secret was kept. And he became a Jesuit priest and became the, the president of Georgetown when black people couldn't go to Georgetown. He had his brothers. Uh, he had a theologian priest who worked in, worked in Rome and a bishop, a priest who was a bishop in Portland, uh, Portland, Maine. And they were passing because to be known as being black was, would be detrimental to their status. So then you get the story of Augustus Tolton, who was the first, who became the first known, publicly known person of African descent in the United States to be a ordained ministry, could not get ordained in the United States. No American bishop would ordain him. And uh, uh, the, the, a cardinal in, in the Vatican had to basically ordain him and send him back, force him on the American church. And now he's up for canonization, but he died young, most likely from exhaustion and depression. And so, I mean, it's, this, is the, this is the backstory. And, you know, I, I, it's just, you know, when I look at, quite frankly, when I, I, I told you earlier, I, I, didn't, I haven't read the bishop's letter, most recent letter. Um, because I couldn't get through the first couple of pages. You know, and, they, and they make some real attempts to, to respond to racism. And yet, embedded in the, in the letter is a deep fear to call a spade a spade and to, to name this problem as a systemic problem, that, that the systemic problem that it is. And so I, uh, we've got a lot of work to do. And we've got all the intellectual resources to do well. And we've got, I mean, the, the Catholic social tradition, Catholic social teaching is such a rich tradition. Our theological anthropology about the, uh, the nature of the human person is so well disposed to, to help us with this problem, and yet we continue to fail at it. Well, Eric, we've come to the end of our time. So you, you should bring me back so that we can talk a little bit more. We, we didn't get to the part about the Eucharist, and I, want, I definitely want to do that. Well, let's do that. I definitely want to do that, Eric. So we'll find a time to do that, and I hope that our listeners will be able to join us again when we continue that conversation. For now, uh, if you'd like to read up, which I highly recommend, on Eric Stiles, some of his writing that's appeared with us in the Church Life Journal, the article that we were talking about here mostly was Black Bodies, Kneeling, and the Liturgy. Black Bodies, Kneeling, and the Liturgy. All right, Eric, thank you so much for spending this time with us. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks to all of you for joining us on Church Life today. This Church Life Today podcast is a production of Redeemer Radio and the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame and is brought to you in part by Notre Dame FCU and our listeners. Does debt have you down? Are you worried about your credit cards, your mortgage, or keeping your car? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union can help. Our people are trained to be financial physicians. They can give you a checkup, help you to heal, and then stay healthy. Don't be embarrassed. It's why we exist. When your body is sick, you go to see a doctor. 
When your finances are sick, you go to see the friendly folks at Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits?